This morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. And this morning it is my joy to open the word up to you and we will be looking at verses 17 through 26. Let me read the text to you. Acts 21, beginning in verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. We have been examining the birth of the church as described by the inspired physician, Dr. Luke, a first century physician that has written the book of Acts. And we have witnessed many things. We've witnessed the miraculous founding of the church at Pentecost, the spirit empowered preaching and teaching and healing of those days. The conversions of Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles, even the conversion of a zealous hater of Christians, a rabbi by the name of Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. And we have witnessed the supernatural growth of the church despite enormous persecution and even martyrdom. And over the last few months, we have been accompanying the Apostle Paul on three missionary journeys of which we now come to the conclusion. And truly, this is his mission accomplished, and thus the title of my discourse to you this morning. He will soon find himself in the bonds and the afflictions that the Spirit of God promised him. He will soon be falsely accused and mobbed by the Jews and arrested in Jerusalem, handed over to the Romans and ultimately taken to Rome in chains. And it's fascinating as we study what happened, we see that reminiscent of the Savior's suffering, 
Luke's account of Paul making his way to Jerusalem in many ways parallels Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem. Jesus, like Paul, you will remember, was the victim of a vicious Jewish plot. And like Paul, the Savior was handed over to the Gentiles. Like Paul, Jesus even received three predictions of the sufferings that he would soon experience, all of them given to him on his journey to Jerusalem, and each one of them recorded by Luke. Like Paul, Jesus maintained his unwavering commitment to proceed regardless the horrors that awaited him, all with an unshakable determination to do the Father's will. And once again, I find myself awestruck at the providence of God that orchestrated all of these events for his eternal purposes. I'm constantly captivated by Paul's steadfastness of faith, by his courage of conviction that motivated, motivated him to face hostility and imprisonment and ultimately death itself for the sake of Christ. What an inspiration this should be to each of us. Each of us that name the name of Christ, especially in light of the mounting persecution that we see occurring here in the United States. This morning, I would like to draw your attention to three scenarios that really characterize this historical narrative. We will be looking at, first of all, a praiseworthy report. Secondly, a threat from false allegations. And then finally, a unifying exercise of Christian liberty. So, join me again as we don the apparel of an early saint, as we join in with Luke and the others that are traveling companions of Paul. Let's just kind of join in with them as they make their way to Jerusalem. And let's see what God is up to and, and why he has revealed to us these truths in this particular text. Moreover, let's see what God will use out of this text to speak truth into our lives. First, we see a praiseworthy, praiseworthy report. Actually, if we back up to verse 15, we read that after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. So here we are in the beautiful Mediterranean port city of Caesarea. If you've been there, you know how beautiful it is. It's about 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And now our little entourage is going to make its way up in terms of altitude to Jerusalem, up to Mount Zion. And along the way, we see that they come to the home of Manasseh. Now, probably his home, we don't know for sure, but it's probably somewhere on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And we read here that he was a disciple of long standing. We don't know, but perhaps he was a convert from the days of Pentecost. Manasseh's uh, Greek name would indicate to us that he was probably a Hellenistic Jew and this would have made it, therefore, very reasonable and comfortable for him to house the Apostle Paul and his many Gentile companions, something 
that even some of the Jewish Christians would still be struggling with. And knowing as a horseman that it takes you about a day to go 30 miles on a horse, I would imagine that they traveled by horseback. We don't know that for sure, but if they did, they've probably been on the road a couple of days. They're on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And we also know from those ancient days that hospitality was a matter of life and death. They didn't have a motel eight or six or whatever it is to stop, stop and spend the night. And so it's interesting as I think about it, this network of Christians all around that part of the world. And they obviously knew that Paul and his companions were coming and they were willing to take them in. And I find it fascinating wherever I've gone in the world, whether it's in Europe or in Africa or wherever, you always find that network of believers. And it seems like you always have a place to stay. Well, probably as as Paul had planned, he is arriving here in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And we see in verse 17 that when he had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. There were obviously many saints in Jerusalem, and evidently they had anticipated his arrival. It would appear from this text that they meet him and all of his companions and take them into their homes. And then in verse 18, we begin to get into the story. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now, may I remind you that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This was not the brother of John, who had already been falsely accused of proclaiming a false god and thus died by the sword. But this was James, the half-brother of Jesus, the senior pastor, evidently, the elder of the Jerusalem church, one of the elders. And it's interesting to note that in Acts, we see a shift in church leadership from the apostles to the elders who would henceforth oversee and rule the church. You might ask, I wonder how many elders there were in that early church. We don't know. There have been some who have suggested that there were 70 consistent with the number that comprised the Jewish Sanhedrin. But we don't know that. There were probably, I would think, many more than 70. In verse 20 of this text, we see that there were many thousands that were a part of the Jerusalem church. And just to keep you abreast of the timeline here, the church was established in 30 A.D., And now, by the time Paul gets into Jerusalem, we're at about 57 A.D. So we've got about 27 years of growth here in that church. So there's many, many people in the church. So verse 19, we read that after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one. The Greek would indicate that he reported to them in great detail every single thing. Again, we don't know, but I would imagine Paul kept a journal of the things that happened over the years of his missionary journeys. And he says that he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And what an amazing report that must have been, especially to these Jewish believers, to hear testimony of God showering his grace upon Samaritans and Gentiles, some of which were literally standing right before them, 
praising God. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that have been a wonderful scene? And notice whom he gave the credit. He says the things which God had done, not what I have done. Beloved, we, we must all stop here and remember that whenever a sinner comes to a saving knowledge of Christ, it is God, not man, who deserves all of the glory. Because salvation is all of grace from the very beginning to the end. It is God who gets the glory, not man. We are merely, we are merely vessels that he has chosen to accomplish his will. And what a humbling truth that is. In fact, Paul spoke to this very issue in 2 Corinthians 4 or 5. He said, we do not preach ourselves. And he was, he was comparing himself against the false teachers who preach nothing but themselves. He said, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. In other words, he's saying Jesus alone is the eternal, sovereign Lord of glory, deserving our utmost love and worship, and I'm only, I'm only a slave who serves the King of Kings. And then he made an astounding statement in that text in 2 Corinthians 4, where he regarded God's work of redemption as being equal to that of creation. In verse 6, he went on to say, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Obviously, it was it is God who receives the glory for creation. And likewise, he's saying he receives the glory for salvation when sinners become a new creature in Christ. And then in yet another statement of self-effacing humility, Paul went on to say in verse seven, now catch this, but we have this treasure. In other words, we have this this glorious message that has originated from the Creator Himself, this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with all of its eternal benefits, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Interesting, in the original language, ostrakinos, it's a term that literally means a pottery, piece of pottery made of clay. A fragile, weak, valueless, dispensable piece of earthenware often used for human waste and for garbage. He says, we have this inconceivably glorious, priceless, eternal message of the gospel in this earthen vessel. Why? He says that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Oh, child of God, please hear this. We are nothing more than slaves and pots. And all the surpassing greatness, all of the power, all of the honor and all of the glory belongs to him. And we need to remember this the next time we feel like strutting around as if we are something spiritually special. Beloved, our boast is not in ourselves. It is in God who breathed spiritual life into our lifeless corpse and raised us to walk in newness of life. So with utmost humility, this great apostle recounted what the Lord had done, takes no credit for himself. And yet here was a man whom the Lord had blinded with with the very light of his Shekinah glory on the road to Damascus. Here was a man 
whom the Lord had appeared to personally on several occasions. Here was a man who suffered for Christ immeasurably. He had taken the gospel from Jerusalem to Macedonia to Greece, all through Asia Minor, ultimately to Rome. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, he says that, that, that he was caught up to the third heaven. Can you imagine that? He says that he was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. And yet he went on to say, on my behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. Indeed, he said, he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. So Paul, in utmost humility, expresses to the elders, which probably would have filled this room, all of the things that God had done. And no doubt they heard the testimony of many men and perhaps women that were with them. So they hear all of this. And no doubt, Paul also delivered the financial gift from the Gentile churches that they had collected, even though there's no mention of it. And in verse 20, we read that when they heard it, they began glorifying God. Isn't that something? They began glorifying God. I would imagine that they gave them a standing ovation, gave God a standing ovation, that they began to clap, maybe began to sing. I love to hear testimonies of God's saving power. I, 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 I love to hear those amazing stories. And here the elders would have heard that there were, there, there were Pharisees and scribes and Roman soldiers and, and, and jailers and civil authorities that had come to Christ. Some of them were probably there. From prostitutes to leading women. From idol worshippers all the way to the members of the Areopagus court. Men and women, boys and girls, miraculously saved from the bondage and the sentence of sin. So no doubt they sat spellbound hearing these testimonies. And after a season of praise for all that God had done, we see that the tone becomes much more somber as we look secondly at a threat from false allegations. Notice there in verse 20, we read, And they said to him, You see, in the original it, it, it's, it's, a ter- it's a phrase that basically says, we want you to come to understand as a result of perception here, Paul. You see, brother, How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. As I was living with this text, one of the things that hit me is, Welcome home, Paul. You thought all your problems were over? No, no. You know, there is never any end to conflict in ministry. There's never any end to it. Every pastor is familiar with this. Sometimes I I literally laugh out loud when I hear how others have tortured something that I have said into some slanderous lie or whatever. You know, it's kind of like flies at a picnic. Whenever and wherever God is at work, Satan mounts an offensive. 
Now, let me explain to you what the problem was here. You see, most of the Jewish converts to Christianity maintained their fidelity to various aspects of the ceremonial law. They were still wanting to keep uh, the Sabbath with its uh, regulations and observe some of the dietary restrictions. They still wanted to keep uh, the, the feasts and the convocations and the ritual cleansing and vows and so forth. Now, you must understand, they understood that the law had been fulfilled in Christ. Otherwise, they wouldn't be saved. They wouldn't be regenerate. And we know that they were rejoicing, knowing that grace had freed them from the bondage of sin. They would have understood, as Paul wrote to the Galatians for this very reason, that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. They would have understood, as Paul said, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And he went on even to say, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. They understood all that. But you must understand, dear friends, that these practices had been the very center of their life and their devotion to God. I mean, these things were the very heart of their culture. No doubt now that they understood the grace of God through Christ Jesus, these practices took on an even greater brilliance as they reflected the glorious light of the gospel of Christ. And so, in their minds, they would think, why should we abandon these things? In fact, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 did not forbid us to abandon or, or to participate in these things. The apostles did not forbid this. They only insisted that these things should never be imposed upon the Gentiles. So why can't we continue these things? Ah, but here, dear friends, is where the enemy found a wedge. A place to drive in his lies. An opportunity to divide and conquer in the church. Can't you hear him now signaling the charge for the Judaizers to come in. Let them invade the ranks of these, of these Jewish converts with the damnable lies of the Judaizers. Let them come in and refute the doctrines of grace. Let them come in and say, oh no, you must be circumcised and you must keep the Mosaic law in order to be righteous before God. All of these other things are lies. Let them come in and make Paul into a heretic. Let them say of him that he is a false teacher and that he should be killed by the sword, not obeyed as some emissary of the Most High God. So again, in verse 21, we read, they have been told. Catecheo in Greek, we get our word catechism from that. It means they have been repeatedly taught. I mean, this was an all out effort here. This was an all-out effort. I would imagine there were seminars that these Judaizers were putting on to try to confuse these Jewish Christians. They have been told about you, Paul, that you were teaching all the Jews who were among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Now, dear friends, of course, Paul never made any such statement. He never told Jewish converts, I want you to forsake Moses and don't circumcise your children. Instead, he 
told them that Jesus had fulfilled the law. And basically, you have been delivered from its yoke. But if you choose to continue to wear it, you are at liberty to do so. In other words, if you choose to delight in the law, knowing that it has been fulfilled in Christ, if you choose to do this as an expression of your love and obedience, you can do so. But it has utterly no saving merit. Your righteousness is in Christ. John MacArthur offered an excellent additional piece of insight here. May I quote this to you? He said, God himself was tolerant during this period of transition. Knowing how difficult it was for the Jewish Christians to break with their past, he also knew that in a few years this would no longer be a dominant issue in the church. After the Jewish revolt against Rome in A.D. 66 through 70, which culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem, the influence of the Jerusalem church waned. Christianity gradually became a predominantly Gentile faith. And other churches, such as Antioch and Alexandria, ascended to the forefront, end quote. So here we have it. There's trouble brewing in the ranks of the church. These haters of grace are stoking the fire. And all of this was very confusing to the Jewish believers. And, of course, it was potentially divisive in the church, not to mention devastating when it came to evangelizing Jews. So something had to be done. They had to stop these false rumors. Let me pause for a moment and remind you of something. Satan is the father of lies. We know that. And he loves to twist and distort facts to cause people to believe a lie. This is a tactic that he used very effectively. It began all the way back in the garden, didn't it? With Eve and with Adam. And he especially loves to discredit church leaders. And all of us need to be very carefully about swallowing some tasty bait of accusation, hook, line, and sinker. We need to get the facts before we judge. It's interesting, in Proverbs eighteen seventeen, we are told, the first to plead his case seems just until another comes and examines him. In other words, we need to get all of the facts. In fact, Paul said in 1 Timothy 5:19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Proverbs 16:28, a perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. And in Proverbs 18:13, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. And finally, in verse 15, the mind of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And it would appear that many in the Jerusalem church wanted to have understanding here. They didn't want to jump to conclusions. And so the Jerusalem elders now had to facilitate this. So they say in verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. In other words, word has probably already gotten around that the Apostle Paul is here. So, the elders propose a solution. One that required, and this would be my third point to you this morning, a unifying exercise of Christian liberty. 
Verse 23, therefore, they said to Paul, do this that we tell you. And here's what they ask him to do. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads. Now, let me pause here and explain this. These men obviously were under what was called a Nazarite vow. They had taken a Nazarite vow. You can read all about this in number six if you'd like to. It was basically a 30-day commitment whereby a man would dedicate himself completely, would be separated completely to the Lord. And during that period of time, they would allow their hair to, to grow. They wouldn't cut their hair at all. They would abstain from all alcoholic drinks and uh, they would not eat or drink anything made of grapes. I mean, no vinegar uh, or anything. And they also would avoid contact with the corpse and so forth. As a footnote, we know biblically that there were three men that did this for life. They are Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. But now here's the plan. It was really twofold. First of all, they want Paul to join these four men by participating in some form of purification vow and the ceremony. And we don't really know exactly what it was. We're not told. Many have indicated, and I tend to lean towards this, that perhaps since Paul had been in the land of the Gentiles many times when they came back in to Israel, they would have a ceremonial cleansing and uh, because they were ceremonially unclean. And perhaps this is what he would do. So, first of all, join them in participating in in a ceremony, in this purification vow. And then secondly, we want you to pay the expenses for these men to be shaved and the expensive sacrifices that were also part of the ceremony. By the way, this was customary for wealthy people to do. It was an act of piety in those days. And you might think, my, surely a hair couldn't be, couldn't be that expensive. Well, it was a whole lot more than that. In fact, I did a little research in number six, and this would have cost Paul in total four male lambs, four ewe lambs, four rams, four baskets of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil, four grain offerings and four drink offerings and whatever the price of a haircut. So by performing these acts of piety, all of which would be consistent with the law, but certainly not for the purpose of gaining any righteous standing before God, the people would see this, they would have a living example of what Paul actually taught and therefore refute the lies of the Judaizers. And he could do this purely on the basis of Christian liberty. And he speaks about this in more detail, for example, in Romans chapter 14 and 15. So in verse 24, they said, then all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. Thus, as I say, a unifying exercise of Christian liberty. In effect, Paul is saying, as Jewish Christians, we are free to participate in these things as an expression of our love and devotion to Christ especially during this transitory 
stage of the early church. In verse 25, James then adds a statement that reiterated the previous declaration that had been made to the Gentile believers, made at the Council of Jerusalem that we read about in Acts 15, that they are not required to obey the law, but only required to abstain from meat, sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. Thus, their proposal to Paul would not in any way infringe upon the Gentiles. So, what happens? Well, Paul humbly and enthusiastically agrees to exercise his Christian liberty in an effort to unify the body of Christ. And I might add that this is not without precedent for the Apostle Paul. You will recall in Acts 18, verse 18, it says that in Sincrea he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. And in Acts 20, Verse 16, we read that he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So all of this was consistent with his liberty in Christ. Now, I want to digress here for a few minutes because there are many practical applications that can be gleaned from this scenario and from others similar to it. In fact, in my studies, I discovered that there were several wise commentators that described Paul's actions in this particular scenario as being an illustration of what he had stated probably about a year earlier in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And in that text, beginning in verse 19, here's what he said. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Now, may I remind you here, as we kind of jump back to Corinthians for a moment, the Corinthians were abusing their freedom in Christ. You had kind of two groups of people. You had some that wanted to use their liberty to do whatever they wanted to do. As, Christian, as a Christian, I'm free, and grace is going to cover it all, so I'm just going to live like the world. And then you had some on the other extreme that reacted in kind of a legalistic pride. They were begrudging and condemning those who exercised their freedom. And Paul responds to this saying, yes, in essence, I have personal liberty in Christ, but I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Now, his reference to being a slave is reminiscent of the bond slave that we read about in Exodus 21. And certainly this converted rabbi was tapping from that particular concept and that particular part of the law. A bond slave would be one who would voluntarily relinquish their freedom to serve their master, to serve those that they loved. And literally what that text describes is that slave would say, I want to serve you for the rest of my life, so I will take my ear lobe, you will place it on the doorpost, and then the master would take a sharp awl and drive it through the ear and making a large hole, a piercing in the ear, which would signify to everyone that this person was a willing, voluntary bond slave of that master. And so, in effect, what Paul was saying to the Corinthians and what we see lived out here in Acts 21 is simply this. I, I'm not concerned about my rights and my preferences 
And I'm not going to misuse or flaunt my my liberties, my freedom in Christ. I don't want to be a stumbling block to others. What matters is for me to be a slave to all men because I want to see them saved. And for this reason, he says that I'm going to enslave myself to all men. We read of this as well in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 10 when Paul said to Timothy, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. And beloved, this is what we witness here in Acts 21. And then he went on to describe his commitment to self-denial in 1 Corinthians 9 in verse 20. And we read this earlier this morning in our Bible reading. He said to the Jews, I become as a Jew so that I might win win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though not being under myself under the law. Why? So that I might win those who are under the law. In other words, when I'm around the Jews that are still in bondage to the law, I am going to respect their sensibilities. And I. I'm going to do all I can to remove any unnecessary barrier in my personal life that might cause them to reject me personally and not hear my message. In other words, I don't want to be an offense personally because of my lifestyle, because I know for sure my message will be offensive. By the way, the key here is understanding, dear friends, that Paul is saying, I will restrain my freedom, not compromise my message. And there's a big difference. I'm not going to water down my message. You never do that, even though you see much of that today. First Corinthians 123, Paul said, we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Nevertheless, we preach that. So if he's going to witness to a Jew, he's basically saying, I'm not going to flaunt my my liberty in Christ and just kind of rush in there and violate their their Sabbath laws and and go out to eat with them and order a pork chop. I'm not going to do that. Reminds me, I've many occasions in my life, I had the privilege, along with my father, to go on fishing trips up into Canada and the Arctic Circle. Many times they were with uh, Jewish businessmen that we knew, many of their sons I grew up with. And we were very careful when we ate with them to eat what they would eat and be careful not to in any way um, violate some of those things that they would hold dear. That's what Paul's talking about. Likewise, if you're going to witness to a Gentile, you don't want to want to flaunt your liberty in Christ by meeting by eating meat offered to idols in those days. That was a big thing. Or you don't want to do anything Uh, To those people um, that would indicate that you're participating in something that would trigger their thoughts and even their superstitions and all of those things of their of their former lifestyle of debauchery and despair. You know, I have talked with recent converts who have been very confused. They've admitted to me as they watch before they came to Christ. Other Christians going to movies and doing things, and especially the music thing always comes up, especially listening to music that in their mind literally defined, if not exalted, the very hell from which they've been delivered. And it was hard for them to understand. Why? Why would you do that? Well, yes, but I'm I'm free in Christ. I have my liberty in Christ. 
I mean, the Bible doesn't say I can't do these things. Beloved, it does if you want to be a slave to all men to win them to Christ. So you have to guard yourself in these things. Might I add, I have found in my own life, and I've talked with many who would agree, you know, the longer you live, the more opportunities you have to feel the deep anguish and pain of sin, especially as it attacks those that you love. And you know, as you get older, you get to a point where anything that you taste or smell or touch or hear or see that somehow links you to the world becomes something that is wholly abominable to you. Because you know what that world has done to your son or to your daughter or to your wife or to your husband or to your father or to your mother or to your friend. And suddenly those types of things that might seem absolutely innocuous to many people cause others to swell up with a sense of resentment and hatred. I find myself at times if I see a soap opera or if I watch certain types of things musically or whatever, I find that within me there arises a holy hatred that literally makes me sick. Because I know what that represents. And I know what that has done in the lives of people that I love. And so all the more reason to be so careful with our Christian liberties. That's why Paul went on to say in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 9, to those who are without the law, in other words, unbelieving Gentiles, as without the law, I'm going to be like that, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. In other words, I'm not going to live lawlessly, but I'm going to do this that I might win those who are without the law. In other words, because of my love for them, I will identify with their customs. I will eat what they eat. I will dress like they dress. I will join in the things that they do as long as those things do not dishonor the Lord. As long as what I'm doing is pleasing to God. Obviously, I will not do anything that would be offensive to the Lord. But also, I don't want to be a stumbling block to them. In other words, I will not become like the world in order to win it. But rather, I will be sensitive to not being needlessly offensive with my personal behavior. And then finally, he said in verse 22, he had a third category. First, the Jews, then the Gentiles. And he says, to the weak, I become weak that I might win the weak. And in Pauline terminology, the weak really referred to those overscrupulous, rule-oriented, even legalistic and immature believers who did not understand their liberty in Christ. They're, they were very weak. Their consciences would be easily offended. So what do you do? Flaunt your liberty? No, you'd be very sensitive to that. And so when he's around the Jews, he felt obligated to, at some level, practice the law. When he's around the Gentiles, be careful with their superstitions. Be careful with those things that would, that would somehow be a stumbling block to them. I am learning as I prepare to go to Russia that I should never put my Bible on the floor. That is terribly offensive to the Russians. Well, you know what? There's nothing in the Bible that says I can't do that. So I could flaunt my liberty. Hey, you know, what's the big deal here? In fact, you should never put, your, put anything on top of the Bible. It should always be the top book on a table. 
I'm also learning that you never cross your legs in a worship service in Russia, because if anybody sees the sole of your foot, that is a sign of disrespect. I'm also learning that whenever you pray, you either stand up or you kneel. You never sit because that's a sign of dishonor. Now, my freedom in Christ says, wait a minute, where do you find that in the Bible? I'll tell you where you find it. If you want to be a slave to all men, you will do those things so that you will not hinder your message. So we see here with the Apostle Paul in verses 22 and 23 of 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I've become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Bottom line, he's saying, I will restrain my Christian liberty to win people to Christ. Whatever the cost, I will gladly modify my lifestyle. I will even set aside my preferences if those things restrict my ability to be heard and therefore hinder another person from coming to a saving knowledge in Christ. That is my commitment. Now, beloved, if I can digress from a digression for a moment, this is not a call for contextualization, as you hear many talk about today, where you use this text. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel and so forth. This does not mean that you wrap the glorious message of the gospel of Christ in the trappings of the spirit of the age. This does not mean that you come along and create some kind of a party atmosphere and then kind of sneak up on people with the gospel. That's not what this text is talking about. And many times people want to to justify all manner of worldliness in, in worship and in evangelism based on this text. And beloved, I would submit to you that those who do that are really betraying a profound misunderstanding of the context of what was going, going on in Corinth. Not to mention betraying an ignorance of what Paul was truly, truly saying. He's not saying, hey, let's become like the world in order to win it. You see, Paul is advocating here condescension, not contextualization. Do you understand that? He's advocating self-denial, not compromise, not evangelical pragmatism. In other words, we are never to come along and to set aside holiness and truth in order to avoid offense. But we are to set aside our personal liberties. And I believe too many Christians today are more concerned about what the world thinks than what God thinks. As if they have no confidence in the Father who draws. As if they have no confidence in the Spirit who convicts. As if they have no confidence in Christ who saves. As if they have no confidence in the glorious power of the gospel of Christ of which we are not to be ashamed. Therefore, since I have no confidence in any of that, I am going to create some kind of an atmosphere to attract a crowd and to do things that will get them saved. And then many times defend it on this particular text. Well, as a result, the world today, I believe, is setting the agenda for how we evangelize. The world today is setting the agenda for how we do church services. The world today is setting the agenda for many Christians with respect to how they live out their faith. Rather than the word of God. 
But beloved, this is not Paul's message. And may I make it real practical for this reason, you will not see here at this church us using anything that keeps sinners in the bondage of their sin, like worldly entertainment, to attract them. And then in the context of frivolity and even depravity, as I as I say, sneak up on them with the glorious gospel of Christ. You don't do that or worse yet, sneak up on them with some diluted, watered down gospel light, trying to remove the offense of the cross, something that is of utterly no saving benefit. Beloved, this is what the charlatans do. Second Corinthians two, verse 17, Paul said, we're not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. You know, I have been in evangelistic crusades and I've been at Christian rock festivals and these types of things. And I can look around. I, I, I've, I've been in probably at least a dozen or more of them over the course of my life. And as I look around, one thing that's exceedingly obvious to me that the people who were there, for the most part, by how they conduct themselves, the clothing that they wear, and even the music that is being performed, they are committed desperately to somehow communicating to the world that we are just like you. That there's really no difference between us and you. While at the same time, it's obvious that they that they reject anything that smacks of holiness and dignity and reverence and transcendence. They, they, it's, it's as if we don't want any kind of an atmosphere that might cause people to truly reflect upon their heart and examine their heart. Obviously, there's no context there. I cannot imagine somebody coming to something like that in the midst of all of that frivolity, beating upon his chest as the publican did and saying, Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Beloved, it is not our similarity with the world that wins people to Christ. It's our difference from the world. And those whom God convicts long to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness that has kept them in bondage, they don't want to be made to feel comfortable in it. We are called to be separate from the world. In James 4, verse 4, we read, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In Romans 12, 2, we read that, that our life and our worship should never be conformed to this world. So Paul was not advocating some worldly Christianity that makes sinners think that Coming to Christ will not require them to make significant changes in their life. He's not saying, hey, let's contextualize this thing so that people think, my goodness, I can be a Christian and I don't have to change anything. Wow, look, they're no different than me. Beloved, that's wrong. When you come to Christ, you're a new creature. There is a transformation. The old things pass away. The new things come. We are literally an alien to this world. We're a citizen of another kingdom. We have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. Salvation is transformation, not mere addition. So, 
with humble willingness to exercise his Christian liberty for the purpose of unity within the body of Christ. Look at verse 26. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Beloved, may I challenge each of you today to examine your heart in light of these truths that have surfaced from this historical narrative, especially with respect to your use or perhaps misuse of your Christian liberties. Are you committed to being a slave of all men that you might win them to Christ? Ask yourself, am I willing to do all that I can within the realm of godly prudence to give them the message of grace? Am I willing to restrain my freedoms wherever and whenever necessary to avoid personal offense? Or am I so in love with the world that I literally crave its enticements? That I long to experience all of its delicious entertainment. That the world really dictates the direction of my life and controls my finances. It dominates my thoughts. It shapes my heart, my worship, even my walk with Christ. Beloved, ask yourself, have I compromised to be like the world rather than condescended to win it? Oh, child of God, I pray this morning that you will listen beyond these stammering lips and that you will hear what the Spirit of God is saying to you as He summons you. Hear His voice and obey that summons upon your life. And may we all do what the Apostle Paul asked us to do when he said, Be imitators of me. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we are humbled when we come before your word. And as the spirit of God applies it to our hearts, we are all convicted. Lord, I pray that somehow these glorious truths will find application in each of our lives, for certainly they should. And I also pray, Lord, that by the power of the spirit, That you will bring conviction to those who continue to walk in darkness. Those who continue to fight against the truth. Those who continue to live for themselves and who have really no love for you. Lord, I pray that you will overwhelm them with great and profound conviction. That they might be saved. Lord, use us mightily in the lives of those with whom we come in contact. May we be salt and light. May we restrain our freedoms and be a slave of all men that we might win them to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.